Hey there, welcome to ATL on 29 at Peachtree Hoops podcast, where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here with Glenn Willis. The Hawks pulled out a game one win against the Sixers today, and I guess I have to start by asking you, uh, Floyd Mayweather or Jake Paul? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> yeah, like the lesser two evils. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, there's a there's a mora- there's a morality view that I have a hard time getting away from that I know more about than them their fighting capabilities at all. So no clue. Okay. Uh, how, how important was Trey and Kevin Herter conspiring to eat 18 seconds off the clock with four minutes left? Well, it turned out to be big because the Hawks were not handling those uh, possessions well in the last what, minute, minute and a half or, or whatever that was. So thankfully they got that clock to zero, however they had to do it, whatever they had to do to get it to zero. Uh, that was all constructive. So uh, we'll take it. Yeah. Uh, you know, what did you, what did you think of this game? It was such a strange game. Uh, I don't really know where you're supposed to start here. Yeah, I know. It's it's one of those where there's like a hundred different angles that you could kind of digest the game from or analyze okay. the game from. I've, I've got one. Let, let's start with Trey Young since he's pretty darn sure. important. Uh, first half, it kind of felt like the Sixers were treating him the same way that the Knicks did. And then second half, we saw more ball pressure. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Totally, totally fair. It was basically, I think, I think the Sixers hoped it was what, circa 2010 Danny Green or whatever it was that you know Danny Green I think you and I talked about before the series started that he's made his money in the league being a point guard defender right Um, and there was all sorts of chatter about how that was going I think Jay Williams on the halftime show mentioned like why is Danny Green guarding Trey Young you know and from the sense of you know Ben Simmons is on that team you know, as is Matisse Tybel, like, you know, why is, you know, this version, this, you know, older version of Danny Green getting that? Um, but, you know, that's what Doc rolled with. And and so many coaches would talk about it with Nate or Tibbs or Doc or whoever. Coaches are really stubborn and they're very loyal to their vets. And if Danny Green thinks, hey, I'm still, you know, a premier point guard defender in the league, Doc is going to kind of like almost any coach in the league kind of, you know, bend towards what those veterans expect to get from an opportunity standpoint. And that seems to be kind of, kind of where the game started. So for me, it probably comes down to that because in the league, it so often comes down to coaches deferring to what the vets want in terms of their opportunities and game plan and all that sort of stuff. Now, just take it away. Take you too far out of this, but uh, you know who didn't do that today? Ty Lue. Uh, we, we got yeah. the Luke Kennard over Rajon Rondo in, in game seven and seemed like it worked. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between the game seven and the game one. Don't, I mean, don't you think? In, in, in game, <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think coaches t- gradually take control as the series goes on and kind of, you know, players expectations and players views of certain things uh, become a diminishing factor in what's planned as more urgency is naturally kind of brought into the series and all of that. Now, uh, when I tried to you know figure out from an X's and O's perspective, what was the benefit of, you know, from the Sixers coaching staff of having Simmons on McDonavich, and I thought, well, maybe they thought if we put our best 
um, perimeter defender on Bogdanovich to take away the Hawks' secondary creator, then we can throw kind of everybody else at Trey, and then we've taken away his outlet, you know, his his place that he typically goes, the way the place that they typically go. And he's going to be able it, to help at the rim more and stuff too. He is, except that uh, the Sixers in put, theory, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but but I mean, it didn't work out that way because the Sixers had Seth on solo you know, to start the game for so long. The Hawks kept putting um, Seth in the weak side corner, making him the helper at the rim. So I, I know we're already hitting on a million things here, but I think the idea was first of all that Danny Green had the job that he thinks he should have to start the series. Um, uh, you know, we saw more of Ben Simmons on Trey later in the game. Um, but then I thought they, their thought was if we take Bogdanovich away, especially before Herder comes on, there aren't other, any other great creators. And they thought they could throw the other four defenders, if you will, you know, in terms of traffic and, you know, creating a wall and all that sort of stuff. So there's, there's, there's those two layers there, but there were so many possessions I saw Ben on Bogdanovich in the corner, completely away from the play, having no bearing on the play at all. So, it, it, you know, so that's factored in today. I think that's a great question for you to start with. You know, how much will we see that change by game two? I have no idea. But it was one of the more, I think, impactful, you know, X's and O's, you know, chess match type decisions that, that impacted the, the game from the very, very beginning. And I think foul trouble, because you look at how the Hawks defended Embiid, and I think they're conscientiousness about foul trouble factored in there, but I think it factors in a little bit with Simmons too, that, you know, if you put him on Trey, I think he's more liable uh, to get an extra foul here or there. And they, you know, they're using him to do so many things, you know, they want him to, to be an offensive initiator. He might get an offensive foul there. They're using him as a screener a lot. Uh, he certainly could have got a couple more fouls doing sure. that today. Um, and so that, I think, you know, if you, you suddenly make him your primary trade ball defender and, you know, he's going to have to be careful. He could pick up like one doing like four different things and all of a sudden uh, the whole game plan is going to have to change because you're not going to have Ben Simmons as much as you want to. But he certainly does seem, you know, better at it than, than Danny Green. He does. And, I mean, to your point, even from – I mean, no, there's no doubt that Embiid is their best and most supported player. There's no doubt about that. But from a defensive standpoint, if Embiid has to come off or if Embiid is hurt, Dwight can replicate a decent amount of what Embiid does just from a scheme perspective, kind of doing the core part of what you need for the position. You lose Simmons as that guy who can defend at the five for times if you need him, all the way to the one, and can you know you can kind of throw him where you need him. If Simmons is a foul trouble, there is no other Ben Simmons to kind of plug into that you know, kind of super glue guy role that he can kind of play in. So I think they do have to kind of protect, you know, protect against that. But if you don't he's put so tight. He's so great in transition. Like there's, yeah. there's, there's, you know, that's just kind of a random thing. It's not a role thing, but there's, there's nobody else that's going to bring that the way he did. That, that certainly got uh, the Hawks in a little bit of trouble today, I'm sure. Uh, if I remember correctly, you know, one of them had Nate instantly call timeout because I think he was just so irritated about it. Yeah, that's that sounds right. And then he had that like ridiculous chase down block on the lob, you know. Yeah, the rim, there were know, a couple so. lobs from Bogey today, and it's like, oh yeah, he's not Trey Young. Like <laughs> he does a lot of Trey things in a Trey like fashion. Throwing lobs is not one of them. That there was at least two that was like, oh yeah, that's not a very good lob pass. Yeah, 
Yeah, and, and even there will be times where Herder does it, and Herder's good at it, where Bogey is just seems more lacking rhythm because he's not, you know, in that high pick and roll constantly like Trey is, but even like Herder is not Trey, you know, right. doing that. But, but I mean, Simmons and I'm has, spoiled. Speaking of Dwight Howard for like years and years, it's like yeah. they had Dwight Howard, they had, you know, Eddie Tavares, they had like so, you know, so many bigs over the years. It's like just, just get them a lob pass and they'll be in great shape. And like, you know, we had Dennis Schroeder throwing them and it was like, oh, yeah, that's not really going to work. He's not a good lob passer. So I say that from a completely spoiled point of view that. We have maybe, I don't know. Like, where, where does he rank in lob passes? It feels like he would have to be, like, a top three lob passer in the NBA. He'd have to be. I mean, you know, I, I have so many memories of Chris Paul lobbing yeah, to Chris DeAndre Paul. Jordan. But, like, DeAndre Jordan had, like, the biggest cat trade as anyone could ever have. You know, so it's like when you're yeah, lobbing but, to DeAndre Jordan, how, how – how do I know you're good at throwing love? Because he catches literally everything, you know. He, he did so, it with a Mecca Okafor back in the day. That's true. Fun yeah. team. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I, I can't think of anyone who's better than Trey. I'll just yeah, put it that way. Yeah, that's for sure. I can't, yep. I can't imagine that, you know. So. Yeah. So, we're spoiled. But I, t- I took so you far afield. Where were we when I started distracting you? Well, I was just talking about how, you know, Simmons is, I think, their most – irreplaceable player in terms of you know finding someone who can kind of do all the different things that he can do and and when they and when the game was really swinging it seemed like you know especially at the end where the Sixers made this fierce you know push and got all the way down to a two-point game which was crazy considering what the you know (laughs) the margin was you know past the midway point of the fourth quarter but Simmons was was in everything you know when that was happening he was in he was in all of the traps Although, you know, but I, I, I have to go back and look to be 100% sure, but I think he was on the inbounder or the five-second call, you know, you know, was was made. He was just all over everything when all that was happening. And to your point, if he's in foul trouble because he's the only – if he's trying to defend Trey, you know, 35 minutes a game, then that's a pretty big problem for Philly. Yeah, and before we leave Simmons, just – abjectly horrible free throw shooting and i'm not even basing that off the numbers i'm just you know eye test it's like how much do you miss by like there are a number of free throws that you know didn't really violate the airspace directly in the cylinder yeah. uh, he, he didn't even goaltend some of his own shots so to speak like they would they would just bounce directly off the front rim and that's i don't know i i don't i'm not really i don't think it's a viable thing to just say okay you know, you're going to do some kind of hack a strategy and there's probably a certain point threshold, you know, late in the third quarter somewhere where you might want to think about it. But uh, just in terms of flow of the game, you know, if you get into a second half and you don't have guys in foul trouble, they definitely have to be cognizant of the fact that, uh, hey, if, if, if he's about to get a shot, you know, play your best physical defense because it's really not that scary if he gets to the free throw line. They just can't let him finish because he's such a good finish. He got so many time. layups. Right. So you got to get him pretty early um, to keep him from converting. But right. I, I mean, it's what's weird is, first of all, I don't think you, I don't think I've ever seen a team that was in the league use a hacker strategy. 
But the Hawks kind of sort of did briefly. Like, in that second foul that Collins put on him in the fourth quarter. Yeah, there was a weird was, one late, and that didn't seem – it didn't really it, seem No, right. I mean, under normal circumstances, it's absolutely crazy. Right. But because when it's Ben Simmons, you go, is, is, is that okay? <laughs> I mean, only him and, like, yeah. how hard of a time he's had made, making free throws in the playoffs, especially – um, you know, he's, he's what, like 50% in the regular season. I'd have to go look or whatever, but he's, well, he was like what, two for 16 or something like that at right. one point. He, um, it doesn't feel like bad luck either. Like you just look at the, you just no. look at the visual result of it. And it's like, oh my goodness, that's a train wreck. Yeah. Yeah. He's got the free throw yips, I think is kind of a way to put it, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, but that, that foul, I mean, Doc had put, Korkmaz and Seth in the game along with, you know, I think Harris was on the floor. Um, and so he had, Doc had basically all of his three-point shooting on the game. And when John fouled Simmons on that play, I was like, that's not a terrible result. You know, at least it didn't get to a, you know, three-point shooter because that's basically what Philly needed at the time. That, but that, that's how bad he is. And it, it is going to be interesting. There's no doubt there'll come a game when the Hawks are playing from behind and trying to catch up. And Embiid certainly was getting them in the bonus pretty early today with all the right. normal challenges he, he throws at the defense. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the hack is right there, you know, for, for Ben if, if, if the Hawks needed to, to play from behind. But, I mean, he's so bad that when you know that this, the Sixers need three-point attempts to have a path to kind of catching up with you, it would be the weirdest thing, but I mean, is that a strategy for when you're ahead potentially? Yeah, but you, you typically want to force the team to run clock and then just go defend the three point line really well. But he's so bad right now that it opens up like a weird set of possibilities that you'd never think were, you know, right. even you know an option. But and you can we'll see, you can kind of you know the other thing that you can kind of get out of that occasionally is you can get Trey Young some rest. You could, yeah. You could, you you know, you can kind of slow down the natural flow and pace of a game where it's just nobody does squat for six minutes. (laughs) Not six minutes of clock time, but six minutes of like human on earth time. But, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about the Sixers for a minute, or at least, uh, start with Embiid. Is it fair to say that the Hawks? doubled him when Capella was on in the first half, didn't double him with a Kongwu, and then they kind of eased up on some of the doubling in the second half? Yeah, I thought the Hawks kind of mixed it up on defense all day today. I mean, even the matchups, like there were times where I thought, okay, it's it's solo on Simmons, and other times, oh, I see John on Simmons. And, and so they were mixing it up all day long. On my rewatch, part of was, that's – is part of that just – um the cross matches that, you know, the guys you want guarding the Sixers and then the Sixers completely switch it up on the other end and have their guys guarding the way they want. It's not a very natural match at times. Yeah, for sure. Especially in transition off of a live ball turnover or a miss and the, and the Sixers kind of get a run out. So I was able, even when I try to separate what I would call transition or semi-transition and just look at the half court, there were times when, I saw Solo on Simmons and times where I saw JC. Then I, so then I was trying to sort out, are they using different matchups when the Philly gets into a high pick and roll set mm-hmm. versus a, a set that's based on awful. So I, I couldn't quite put the pattern together, but um, you know, for, for 
in terms of doubling Embiid, um, I I thought they were mostly trying to stay away from it when Capello was on the court, um, except when in the third quarter, Embiid really got that wasn't he really got rolling, um, and then they started stunting a little bit and showing a little bit of help even when Capello was there. Uh, and, and such, but I thought that the idea going in, based on what I saw, was that they wanted to avoid uh, doubling Embiid um, straight out. Um, but I, I would guess we saw that what maybe six or seven times today. Did, did it feel like it was more than that to you? That feels like it was about to me. I felt like there were a lot in the first half, but I haven't gotten to rewatch it yet. Yeah, yeah, could. Could be, um, but yeah, they definitely weren't getting him uh, into being a passer past the first, I think, seven or eight minutes of the game. Um, you know, so th- you're right. As I think think back to my rewatch, I think most of the outright double teams were coming earlier in the game than in later. Um, and it was interesting that stretch where the Kongu played to finish the first half because Capella had two fouls that they were playing that really differently, you know, and, and trying to keep yeah. a, a Congo just in front of him. And mm-hmm. it looked like, it looked to me like a Congo was told to just try to make him a face up shooter, not letting him get by you, um, which he had mixed results on and things like that. But it was, I, I don't know that I came away with like a, a perspective on how based upon what happened today, how the Hawks should handle and be going forward. I don't, I, they were really mixing it up. It's, it's sort of like when coaches are asked, like I remember, I think game six of Clippers Mavs and whoever was doing the between the quarter interview asked T. Lou, you know, what are you going to do to slow down Luca? And his response was, well, we just got to throw different things at him. And that's coach speak for, I'm not going to tell you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what we're going to do. Right. Um, but and it feels like you know, but it, I honestly felt like today they were just showing different things at Embiid depending on where on the court he was. If he was on the mm-hmm. baseline, that's when they doubled more often. When he was up at the elbow, they didn't double right. so much there. Right, right, right. If he, yeah. if, but if he dribbled down towards, you know, so it's probably mm-hmm. something more around the area of the floor he was at when he was possessing the ball and all of that. But it was, I still think they mixed it up a good bit. Yeah, I. I and, you know, obviously there's no right answer. That's why he's a top three MVP player. But, right. you know, I think I think doing, you know, making plays is going to be more physically demanding than, you know, being the playmaker and passing. So, you know, if, if that factors into it, they may need to just, uh, you know, see how much he can do because – you know, NBA is a physical grind. I think we saw that somewhat with Luca today. Not that I don't know if it was injury, fatigue, or whatever, but you know, the guy guarding him in the second half was Kawhi Leonard, and you know, the grind gets to you. It's it's hard to do stuff again and again and again. It was hard for Luca because they were switching, you know. So it's an ISO play almost every time, and it's right. you know, I I think there's a certain factor that that you want to do the same thing with the Sixers and just see, you know, okay, what's what's the physical limit of how many minutes they can play him, how much they can go to him to score. Uh, but if you let, you know, if if you make life too easy for him as a passer, you're not really going to be able to see that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you, so he played in the first and third quarter, first and third quarter, 
he played all the way to like the three minute mark. He played a good like nine minute stretch before he came off the floor. That made me feel like, okay, we're going to see him in every game. He was a game time decision in terms of whether he's a play or not. But then like I looked up and it was like under three minutes to go in the first quarter before he got subbed out. And I was like, okay, he's got to be in pretty solid shape if he's playing that long of a stretch, you know, in this game. So it just made me feel like there was some uh, gamesmanship maybe around his actual status, which is, which was, which is not rare, you know, <laughs> in the NBA. But it, right. it, one takeaway for me was like, he's got to be in decent shape if he, they're playing him that long, as opposed to like playing him for five, sit him for four, you know, five more, you know, that just made me feel like he's probably a go for the series. So, I don't know. Did you take anything from that long, the long stretches he played? I honestly, yeah, I did. You, I didn't really think about it in those terms. I just thought in the second half that, there were there were a number of post moves that just looked awkward as heck. Like he was, you know, he was playing back to the basket and trying to pivot around his right shoulder, his right side, which is sort of a play where you'd normally do something with your left hand right. uh, or fall away or something. And he kept, and, and not badly, mind you, like he was doing it to compel. And I'm like, well, what the heck? How is this even working? But he was, you know, <laughs> he, was, he was pivoting on his right shoulder and then doing, taking shots with his right hand you know, dropping it in like he was Will Chamberlain. And it's like, right. I mean, it worked. But to me, it you know, he, he was making those moves. And when he was getting up those right-handed shots, it was like he was trying to get off his left leg and and not, you know, normally in those situations, you use left hand, right leg as kind of your, your power base. And it looked like he was, wasn't. And it's like, well, maybe there's, you know, that just looked like the one instance of, to me where it looked like he was uh, trying to stay away from his right leg apart from a couple of like, yeah. you know, Made air collisions where he definitely didn't want to land on it either. Yeah, he he definitely looked like he was tired down the stretch uh, to me. I thought he looked pretty good the whole game until he looked yeah. tired towards the end. So that's maybe the other thing to kind of keep in mind is, um, you know, it's a, he must be feeling it, you know, in some way, you know, but that's that could be a factor in, ter- in terms of how much exertion he uh, is going to have to deal with, you know, just getting up and down the court. Yeah, so I was surprised we didn't see more Simmons. At, I was surprised we didn't see more Simmons at the five, you know, mm-hmm. than we did because they they play so much more, so much faster. And t- I think typically you want to speed up the Hawks' defense a little bit because they're, uh, um, especially the second unit. I'm mm-hmm. surprised that Doc didn't go with Simmons at the five versus the Hawks' second unit a little bit more. You know, get Gallo running up and down the court and. Mm-hmm you know, kind of put Lou in a couple of tough spots and things like that. So that was a little bit curious to me, to me too, why we didn't see more of that. Yeah. And it seemed like everybody uh, on the Philly side was very, except very upset by the first half rotation. The, the, the all bench lineup for the Sixers was, was kind of disastrous. That really was like a, a huge turning point in the game. You know, they got, a, the Hawks got a, a big lead with the starters and, you know, when it when it came to some bench units, uh, I think it was like heavy bench for the Hawks and all bench for the Sixers, and uh, the Sixers were really not good. Um, and it's going to be interesting. And like you said, you know, you probably want to get Simmons in there more. You mentioned how he was sort of his you know his defensive capacity was just kind of being wasted off ball in certain situations, and you could you could see him being used better. Uh, with some sort of staggering or something because that, that, that one lineup really wasn't very good. 
Yeah, I noticed at the end of the game that the Hawks starters were kind of across the board, like minus 11, minus 12, and all of their bench players are like plus 12, plus 13, plus 14. <laughs> uh, you know, which, which is, is not the usual. I think, a, no, not the usual. And in terms of how the Philly fans felt about Doc's all bench unit, oh, that was the Hawks fans in game two of the Knicks, you know, series. Right. Uh, and they stayed with that one, so can empathize for sure there. But I, I, I mean, I thought that the like the minus eleven, minus twelve for the Hawks starters was most. They were probably neutral until that last stretch right. when the Knicks made that big surge. Right. Um, but like, but when the both second units were on in the second half, that like I think it was the second half. That's when like Philly didn't make a a field goal for like what a long time, like six minutes or something. I, it was a long time in between scoring for them. What did you think? I mean, uh, you know, the Hawks didn't have DeAndre Hunter today, and they started Solomon Hill, and that seemed to go pretty well. Uh, but to me, it felt like Nate McMillan wanted to get out of that pretty quickly when the Sixers started applying more ball pressure. Yeah, I, yeah. When I thought Solo was uh, uh, good today, I saw a lot of people on Twitter saying he was bad. I wasn't sure what that was about. I think Solo just does stuff that doesn't jump out to you. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not you know, going to get, you know, five assists in his role. And, you know, he's not going to, you know, knock down six or seven from the three-point line. He was, like, really disruptive defensively. Yep. Um, and just kind of doing normal Solomon Hill stuff. But what I thought Nate did was when the when Philly really ramped up the pressure on Trey, he wanted to get a third ball handler on the court, which Solo's right. like a ball handler. Nope. So I thought it was purely about getting more ball handling on the court at that mm-hmm. point in time. And yeah. I thought it worked well. Herter was awesome today. Yeah, her was amazing, and that that was certainly yeah that was the reason that they they wanted to do that. They wanted another ball handler, uh, and I'm sure the the shooting doesn't hurt either because you know that sure. you're taking away Trey's offense. But to do that, you know there are going to be more open jump shots to be had. Yeah, and down the stretch, I was almost at one point I was almost wishing like when they couldn't get the ball to half court or they couldn't get the ball. But I was like, get Lou out there, get a fourth ball handler. You know, all you guys got to do is dribble the ball across half court (laughs) and get any reasonable shot and you're in good shape. So, I I mean, I wonder if the coaching staff are like, yeah, we should have put Lou out there, you know, with Trey and with Herter and with Bogey, you know, and play those guys. And all you got to do is basically get the ball across half court. I guess I would add, like, is is Lou a good ball handler? Like, it seems to me like for a point guard – you know, he's, he's great at getting free throws. He's great at sort of navigating pick and roll, but it doesn't strike me that he's like this great ball handler. But I guess, you know, given the comparable options, it's probably pretty good. Yeah, and, and just his his experience and how cool he is. Right. I mean, just as a fourth guy on the court that can, you know, just be uh, competent with the ball yeah. and know when, when to dribble it, when to pass it, when to move it, and, and you know, I, I just thought his experience and his, you know, how cool he is, um, you know, in terms of decision making and you know pressure not getting to him, a situation like that. I, I, I mean, that's a pure hindsight twenty twenty thing. I don't know that I actually thought that during the game, or if I thought that like after the game, like oh, that's something they could have done. But I mean, it was bonkers. You know, the last, the last few minutes were were really crazy. <laughs> that probably is a situation where. You know, truth be told, Rajon Rondo is helpful. Like, I, I could see that being sort of right in his wheelhouse. Just yeah, it's, it's, funny. It, it's funny. On the rewatch, I was trying to figure out, like, what are all these mistakes they made? And, Kevin, they were 
like kindergarten mistakes, like basic, <laughs> really basic stuff. Yeah. Like there's one turnover Trey had where he waited until the second defender got all the way to him. Then he tried to like snake a, a pass in between them. It got deflected and fully grabbed it. And and I would think like all the, all the coaching I've done with like kids and youth and teenagers, it's like you teach, you know, pretty young players that as soon as the second defender starts coming to you, that's when you give up the ball basically to a player who's in the area that defender came from. And instead, like time after time, they were waiting until the second defender got all the way there before they would get the ball up. So when, after the, at the end of the game, I was like, what happened? And after the rewatch, my takeaway was they just relaxed. And then Philly like pounced on them at the exact time. They just relaxed and thought they had it in hand. I think after that John and one putback, I think, they, when I rewatched, I was like, they just relaxed and they just let go and like, well, we got this. And Philly just pounced on them and they never really unrelaxed. Again, they went from being relaxed to being like, oh my God. And now they're, you know, all over us. And I, we, we, you know, they couldn't get that switch turned back on because they weren't really under control. Like for, you know, most of the game, I was so impressed with how much control they showed early on, just like they did the next series. Like they came out with a plan. They were executing the plan on both ends. They were doing well. And there were some, you know, some sloppy parts of their play, but they were on plan, you know, on both. And then at the end, it was like, you guys are look like a bunch of amateurs, <laughs> you know, came in and get the ball inbounded. But I mean, it, it wasn't like Philly was, you know, throwing some complex thing at them. They were just no. making like junior, junior high level mistakes. And the only rational explanation I could come away with is they just looked like they relaxed and felt like the game was over. And then once, you know, Philly got back on, on them. They couldn't figure out, like, well, where's that switch we got to turn back on? And they never they figured out where it was. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're probably rusty, too. It's just not something that you see all that often. But I don't know. Yeah. It, yeah, it and then the, yeah the, and the other thing is just that maybe even to them, I mean, the, this, the difference between the, the Knicks and the Sixers is, like, universes apart i mean i mean there's so many things philly can do to you and throw at you that the knicks just can't the knicks were just what the knicks they were randall and rose and then some good team defense you know um and played hard and physical but philly can throw just all sorts of different weapons at you and different things at you and so i thought the hawks you know they they were really shooting the ball well or the first half and into the second half and they were doing a great job of staying on plan. And then when Philly got desperate and threw like like 19 different kind of ways of trying to create pressure on you as you have the lead, I think part of it was just the Hawks, that the form of rustiness I saw was just like, oh, my God, here's this team who has all these different capabilities that the team we just beat in the first round didn't have. And they were like a little bit overwhelmed in, in that sense. And I think a lot of that came to bear right when it looked like they relaxed. Yeah. Uh, what sort of thing would you expect in game two from the Hawks in terms of, you know, what the game plan looks like offensively if, if the pressure continues, if they're like, hey, we need to just do this from the beginning? Yeah, so, so offensively, I wonder if, they, if Hunter can't play. I wonder if Hill starts again. Um, or I wonder if they just go to Herder, you know, right off the bat and just get more ball handling in the game. I would expect the, the reason I asked that and contemplate that is 
I would expect the sisters, the Sixers to bring more pressure immediately mm-hmm. and to try to kind of take control by just throwing a really you know big punch at the Hawks right off the bat. And I, I, I wonder if that if the Hawks coaching staff could anticipate that a bit by putting her into the starting lineup. And it's, it's not like it's not it's it's not like it's something Nate hasn't done. Those three started quite a bit, you know, down down the last, you know, in the third, fourth, fifth weeks to go, right? And that's yeah. starts out to go look. But those three started quite a bit together um, when Hunter Hunter was still out, you know, um, and, and such. So, you know, at one point I felt like I thought Nate was, in fact, ramping those guys up to start in the postseason together. So that was to be the first thing I wonder about. But I totally expect the Sixers to come out with a lot more pressure. Um, and then it's going to be really on Bogdanovich and even maybe even Collins a little bit to kind of be an outlet valve and to kind of turn and, and make some plays. Uh, Collins, I think, had two times he functioned in the short roll today, and they both went well. One time he made a kind of a, a runner. The other time he hit um, uh, Capella on that lob play. Um, but it, I, I think they need to be prepared for the Sixers just outright tra- trade to start the game. And I think that that might require that they get – Heard her on the floor to start the game, kind of like they did mid-game or mid-first, second quarter, whatever that was, when they pulled Solo up and heard her on. But it, I mean, the, the the other thing about Solo is that they were putting Solo in the weak side corner on like every play, and Seth was on him. And the, the thing that was valuable was they were making Seth the tagger um, right. on the big man diving at the rim, or, and or the helper at the rim, depending on the play, which was something you typically want. But he, like, totally ignored Solo and came down into the paint really, really early. And that's why the Hawks finished, like, I think minus 18 in the paint was just because how much he came off. If you have, you know, Herder in that corner, you're probably going to get some more space for your big man to get to the rim because Seth can't venture so far off. So, I, that's, for me, that's what I'm looking for is do you switch out your starting lineup, Solo for Herder? And then if you don't do that, do you stop putting Solo in the weak side quarter so much and put Bogdanovich or even Collins as a, a, a shooter you have to respect a little bit more than her. Solo? So you open up the, that pick and roll with the big man diving to the rim. As the game went on, the Sixers basically took that away until they had to start gambling and trapping because they were behind. Yeah. Uh, well, one person that we really haven't said much about, Clint Capella, Oh, he was he was so solid today. He was – I thought he did a really good job staying – keeping himself out of foul trouble, but presenting, um, you know, himself to, to Embiid in the way that he needed to. Um, I thought Embiid made some toughish shots. Some of the face-up shots that he made were ones that you live with, especially at the elbow. If you can get Embiid shooting over kind of his defender and two more guys shading in at the elbow, and he hits that 15 or 16 footer. To, you know, the cliche is tip your hat. That's all, you know, fine. <laughs> you know, if he's not, I mean, how many times did Embiid get to the middle of the paint? Not that many times today. Right. You know, and typically when he has a, you know, uh, you know, the number of points he had today, he's doing a ton of that in the middle of the paint. And just because the team cannot keep him out of there. I mean, I thought the Hawks did a pretty good job on him. In terms of where his shots were coming, and you know, and just keeping him, you know, completely, you know, or for the most part off the rim, um, and you know, Capella was a, a good rebounder. Even there were times he couldn't collect the rebound because he just had to do all he could to just kind of keep Embiid off the glass or whatever. But right, 
he was solid. His communication was so good on defense. He kept everybody organized. And uh, that's, that's what I thought. What, what did you see? Yeah, no, I, I saw the same thing. I just – I thought maybe if you could say one thing, it, it seemed like he didn't have the – this kind of ties into literally what you were talking about two minutes ago, but it just felt like uh, – the paint was kind of crowded, but also Clint really wasn't playing with force on his roles. It just, and I mean, you can't really fault him. I mean, I just think that playing and beat defensively is just going to take so much effort, but it just feels like, it just looked like there were a couple of plays where, you know, he would be in a pick and roll action with Trey and he was kind of resigned to the fact that it really wasn't going to come to him. And he was just kind of, going through the motions maybe a little bit on offense. But like you said, you know, with Solomon Hill in there, there's a lot more bodies. And I, you know, I think you get a lot more tentative that you don't trample somebody, get a dumb offensive foul. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I will, it's I, just something to keep an eye on. No, I'm, I'm glad you said that because it, it refreshed my memory that um, he was a little stagnant, like not getting below the free throw line after his screen um, and things like that when the paint was crowded. But one thing I didn't notice until my rewatch is that he, JC did a little bit too, but when they couldn't get to the paint, they turned back and the and look for opportunities to rescreen mm-hmm. Trey's defender again. And so I thought it looked a little bit weird and it looked like he was kind of in the middle of the play, not doing anything. But on my second watch of the game, which is more analytical because it's not live and you know the you know the game flow's not there so much, you know the result. I thought I thought Capella and JC were both kind of turning and looking back for an opportunity to give. Trey a little more help with one more screen or half screen or whatever that was. I think there was some of that going on. Um, and then also to defend um, Capella, that layup that he blew after Solo hit him with that pass and transition after Solo stole the ball. Right. It, it looked so bad on the rewatch. Solo's pass was so bad. It was so far behind Capella. It was, really? it was pretty amazing Capella caught it. Okay. Um, so I, I have to, I mean, Solo's my guy. I, you know, I love Solo, what he brings to the team. Um, you know, whether he's, you know, in the rotation or not, I think he's just such a helpful guy. But that Capella, it wasn't nearly as bad as it looked live. I mean, that was a pretty rough, rough pass to Capella. There was way behind him. But I, didn't, I didn't pick up on that until I watched it the second time. Okay. Um, I don't really have any more questions for you, Glenn. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about? Um, how to so them getting game one with no hunter and a B playing? Uh, how, how does this shift how, the possibility for the Hawks to win this series? Does, does it did it move the needle at all for you? Does it look like more open now? I mean, statistically speaking, you win what the Sixers have to win four out of six against the Hawks, but did this change? kind of the formula of what you expect the outcome of the series to, to kind of be? I mean, yes and no. Uh, just because Joel Embiid was such a wild card with his health, like, I, were they bluffing? I had no idea what to expect out of him. And he played today and he looked great. So that, to me, sort of lowered the Hawks' win probability. But at the same time, it's like a game one. This just this just felt like a game that the Hawks had to have. Um, the Sixers were... 18 and 0 coming into this game with uh, you know their best starting lineup, the one they started today. Like they hadn't lost at home with that starting lineup all year, and it just felt like 
you know, you just needed sort of the game one wonkiness, the nerves, the not having seen each other before, the fact it was a 1 a.m. or 1 p.m. Eastern time game. It just felt like it had all the all the necessary weirdness to make it more of a crapshoot than the typical game. And I just felt like if the Hawks were going to steal one, it was probably going to be game one and not game two. So uh, I, you know, I think that massively tips the scale in the Hawks' favor. So, but but again, balancing that against what we saw from Embiid's health and the fact that Hunter didn't play, I don't know that necessarily changed it a whole lot just because, uh, you know, the outcome sort of balanced the injuries. And I mean, we knew the Sixers were great, but the Hawks have been great too. And so, uh, you know, it just, just looks like a long, tough, you know, six or game, six or seven game series coming up. Yeah, I think I feel the same way. Uh, it was – it was sort of the Hawks were for sure kind of getting their foot in the door and that this about as much as you can in game one, I think. And so I don't want to be dismissive of that. It's such a huge opportunity to get game one for them. Uh, and our prediction um, round table at Peachtree Hoops, I said that I think the most likely outcome is Sixers and seven. You know, I think the Hawks are going to be pretty competitive in the series. Um, and, and when I answer those, I don't do that as a fan. I do that you know, from my analysis. Um, as a fan, I hope, 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 hope the Hawks, you know, find a way to win this series. It'd be amazing. It'd be so much fun to watch. And I don't put anything past Trey to be able to do at this point after the way he kind of owned round one versus the Knicks. But this is just a completely different beast. Um, so I would say I don't really see the kind of the the probability of the – probabilities of what could happen in the end of the series change but at the same time I wanted to be I don't want to be dismissive of how important it was for the Hawks to give them as much of a fighting chance as they'll have by winning game one great job and you know super result and it, if they had lost a day I mean beating Philly four out of six times to try to win back that'd be tough so you know I still think it's gonna be an uphill battle but I think that they did some serious you know work today to do what they could do to make them feel pretty good about their chances. So I, I don't want to feel like this is a throwaway result. The way that we talk about it is a big deal. Even if we feel like, you know, it might, it may not change the way we see the outcome um, kind of looking to us. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I know for me personally, like in advance of the Knicks series, I looked at a whole bunch of like computer models. I wanted to know what they thought you know, all the simulations and predictors and betters and stuff. And honestly, and I didn't even do this consciously, but I didn't look at anything for this series. And I think it was just because of Embiid. <laughs> it's like, right. you know, the models are all based on these uh, various suppositions. And it's like, you know, is, is that a good axiom to build it on? It's like, well, who knows? You know, is he going to play? Is he not going to play? I have no idea. And, and the, the models didn't either. So it just seemed like a pointless exercise to look at them. Uh, but, I, you know, I think a really big thing was just sort of establishing Bogdanovich and, and Herter. Um, Huge. I, I think yeah. them, that for them and their confidence and the fact that they, they can be the, the secondary playmakers uh, to really grease what's, you know, been a good offense for a long time. But the, the Sixers, uh, man, I mean, they, that, that's a really good defense. Um, really so to, to see them to see them do that against that defense was that that was impressive. Yeah, I I said and I think maybe in that piece that for the Hawks to win, 
their path of winning the series is through putting, I think you, you and I even talked about it, putting shooting heavy lineups on the court and putting some of their best offensive lineups on the court and just trying to take big offensive swings at them because there's only so much you can do with a beat. For any team in the league, there's only so much you can do. But at the same time, I put together a video of a piece for Hoops of what the, what the Sixers do offensively when Embiid's not on the court. And, and I put that together under the premise that Embiid might not play early or might not play the whole series, whatever. I'm telling you, Kevin, I came away worried about what the Sixers can do to the Hawks with Simmons at five, at the five on offense. Because he basically does a ton of what Bam does for Miami, only he's faster. And, um, and I mean, for example, what do you do with Capella if they roll with that lineup for a long time? Do you put him on Simmons? And Simmons is basically stopping at the top of the key and acting like a point center. And they're running all this stuff off of him that gets Capella away from the rim. Uh, and they play faster. And they play with more movement, player movement and ball movement. And so, I mean, a part of me, I mean, Embiid is a load. He's one of the best players in the league, but you know what you're getting there. And and you know what you can do, and you know how you try to limit overall what they do with him on the court. I'm worried as a fan that Doc might come back and go, oh, we're just not going to play Dwight, you know, and we're going to play Simmons at the five when Embiid is off, and we're just going to run the ball right down their throat. What does that do with Capella? How does Nate adjust his rotations to kind of try to match up there? Now, that we saw a little bit of that in the second half today where that's when Collins played at the five was when Simmons was at the five. So it looked like Nate was ready for that. Mm-hmm. But, I, but at the same time, the Sixers didn't throw everything offensively that they do with Simmons at the five at the Hawks today. So that's – you asked me earlier, like, what are you looking for game two? I'm, that's one thing I'm really looking for game two is do the Sixers roll no Dwight, Simmons at the five when the beat is off, and just really force the pace and can the Hawks deal with that. So that's, that's a huge thing for me in game two. Yeah, I mean, for for me, you know, they're trying to make the best of the non-Embiid minutes, but, you know, taking Embiid off the court anymore than is necessary feels like a loss. So, I I mean, if I'm looking at it from the Hawks' point of view, I don't mind Embiid being gone. That's what I'm going to try to rest Capella. And, you know, I'm going to try to get a Kongu's minutes then when when that situation happens and, and, you know, I'd have to look at more of the offense to, to really have a good feel for it, but I don't know. I, I, I honestly, a Kong has been a lot better than I would have expected, you know, for the entirety of the playoffs really, but especially the, the last week or so. Yeah. I mean, I said today that when Nate decided to close the second or close the second quarter with him to protect Capella from a third foul, mm-hmm. I thought the Hawks maybe gave back about six points uh, during that stretch to protect Capella from his third foul, but it's not because the Congo didn't play well. I mean, no. he's just, I mean, he's not as, as big as Embiid. Embiid was just using his size, but Okongu was playing you know, good footwork, good technique, trying to get him to you know, start his post position as far from the paint as possible, force him baseline instead of away from the middle, you know, towards the baseline, away from the middle of the paint. So he was kind of doing a lot of little stuff, but it, but he's just not as big as Capella, and he doesn't get the respect from the officials that Capella does and things like that. So... I mean, Okongwu is becoming more viable, it feels like, every game, you know, and his game, his play's getting a little more solid, um, and he's, like, just more sure what he's doing. It seems like every, he was pretty good today, I thought. Right. Yeah, and I, I don't know that you want to necessarily put him on Simmons, but just in terms of, like, the transition game, he's really – there are really aren't a lot of guys on the Hawks roster that you could say are sort of 
comparable athletes to, to Simmons. You know, Collins is athletic, but he doesn't have that kind of strength the way that Simmons does. And right. Kongu does. Like, if he it does. ends up being an up-and-down game, you can live with it. Uh, if Embiid is sitting, you don't feel, you know, too awful about whether or not he can get rebounds. I, I just that, – that seems like what you would want to do there. Uh, I just don't know who you'd want to put next to him, but is, is it Collins? I, I, it just seems like the game is going to go so turbo at that point that, that it gets difficult for Gallinari if they, if they put Simmons at center. Yeah, that's my thought is for Doc to try to catch Capella off, Gallo on, then go Simmons at the five and kind of really push the pace. That's where my concern kind of, kind of comes up. Will, yeah. you know, this kind of goes back to Doc and Danny Green – Danny Green want to be the point guard defender, you know, will, will Nate say, sorry, Gallo, got to pull you off right now? Or will he like, okay, Gallo's a vet, and he's, you know, done a lot for us this year, so I'm going to kind of give him a chance, and, the, and then all of a sudden the snowball starts. You know, that's where my – some of my concern is. I think there's a balance to it, though, because those might also be some of the Trey off minutes, and you really – I think you're going to want Gallinari with Trey more if the ball pressure increases. So there's, there's a whole sort of – <laughs> so, symbiotic thing here where things can kind of mesh out and end out okay in the long run uh, there are many layers to this right I mean, right I mean, there's so that's what makes this series so interesting to me is on both sides there's so many different adjustments and counter adjustments and little you know minor adjustments and and it's it's gonna be fascinating to see i hope we get you know seven you know full games of it unless somehow the hawks can wrap the series could wrap up the series earlier than that but I think it's going to be a fascinating series, and it's interesting because both coaches have nine, ten players they'll play, and they're different. You know, they're they're not like you know the backup small forward does eighty percent of what the starting small. They're different, and it you yeah. know Gallo is different than anything on the Hawks starting unit, and Simmons is different mm-hmm. from anything on the Sixers bench. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be fascinating to watch these coaches kind of try to find those um, little you know points of leverage where they can kind of catch. Um, a lineup with a certain vulnerability on the court for the other team and throw something at it to maximize that. It's going to be a huge part of the way the rest of the series goes. Yeah, I agree. I'm looking forward to it. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed Clippers Mavericks so much more this year for the, for the same reasons. It just for felt sure. like a, a, a more interesting chess game than it was last year. I don't know. There was just a lot of things going on there. Yeah. I thought T. Lou took control. Uh, in game six and seven. It was the second half of game six and then game seven, I thought Tilo kind of took control. And then the most fascinating, I've not been a big Clippers believer. I just think they don't love playing together just based upon watching them. And that I, I didn't know, I never believed that they could handle adversity together and kind of really dig deep and hang together. But if they're going in game six, they basically let Kawhi be the Raptors version of Kawhi, where he just, like that series against the Warriors, he owned the last three games, like offensively. And if Paul George is going to let Kawhi do that and kind of play a little bit of a you know supporting role, then I might be swinging back around to believing the Clippers might be able to do this. So, you yep. know, but it's fascinating to watch. Agreed. Going to be fun. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Have a good one. Yeah, you too, Kevin. Thanks for having me.